You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. That's the cry of our heart, Lord, that not our wills, but yours be done. That you would conform and transform our wills to yours. We look to Jesus as the, uh, as the pinnacle of that example, that in that garden, he prayed that you would take this cup from him. They said, not my will, but yours be done. Because your will is perfect. Your will is holy. Your will. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat, guys. If you haven't been with us before, or it's been a while since you've been with us, we're going through the book of John. Uh, We're turning over New Leaf this morning. We're in John chapter 18. Um, Over the last several weeks, we've read through and study the final teachings of Jesus when it comes to his disciples. He uh, was preparing them for his departure. He was commissioning them for their mission. He was teaching them to love and to serve one another. And all of it is leading up to this moment. We are coming to the climax of John, the John's gospel. As we have seen before, John is a master storyteller, and he prepared us for this moment from the opening chapters, from the beginning when he said that Jesus was a son of God who donned on flesh. And he has continually reminded us that Jesus' purpose and his mission on earth was to come to die so that he could save people. He reminded us over and over again through Jesus' word that, that his time had not yet come, but he knew that the time was coming and the time is now. In John chapter 18, the time has started. This is a moment that we have been anticipating from the very beginning of John's gospel. In the next two chapters, chapter 18 and 19, that we're going to cover over the next three weeks, are going to focus on the last hours of Jesus' life. These 27 verses that we're going to look at this morning are going to highlight the betrayal that Jesus felt. Betrayal is going to be the theme. And he's going to fill it on three fronts in chapter 18. He's going to see and feel Judas' final betrayal in the garden. He's going to, he's going to have Peter betray him two times, well, three times, but in two parts, and then the religious leaders are going to betray him as well. Outside of Jesus and John, all the major players in the next part of the story in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27, are spineless and weak and broken people who demonstrate unfaithful and godless characters. One thing I want us to keep our eyes on and ears open to, though, is that as we read through these verses, as we study these scriptures, is that Jesus isn't shaken by these betrayals. He knows that he is still in complete control. He isn't put off by or confused by what's happening. He knew it was going to happen. He knew the struggle was coming, and he knew that the cross was inevitable. So he stared headlong into his future and was resolute to continue. He was focused and determined to die for our salvation. The time had come, has come, and he was prepared to do what he was sent to do. But before we look at chapter 18, let's go to the Lord one more time with prayer. Father God, I pray that as we open your word, as we read John chapter 18, Lord, that you would illuminate your scriptures, that you would open our minds and our hearts to what it is that will transform us, that we will see the truth of the gospel, that despite Jesus being betrayed, he was still faithful to the end that he felt 
the pain and the heartache of being betrayed, Lord, but he was still faithful to your promises and your purposes. We're grateful for that, Lord. Again, illuminate your scriptures. Open our minds and our hearts to what it is you would say to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. This is what it says. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So this opening scene, Jesus had just finished teaching his disciples and praying for his disciples in John chapter 13 through 17. And if you haven't read that, go back and read it. It's amazing. But now it's time for him to make his death march to the cross. John tells us that Jesus took his disciples across the Kidron Valley into the garden. One thing to note that here is that the Kidron Valley is a special place in, uh, in Jerusalem. In fact, part of the Kidron Valley, Valley is where um, when they would sacrifice animals, it would drain into, out of the Temple Mount, into the Kidron Valley. This valley was dry most of the year and would flow with water during the wet season, but at Passover it was dry. And so Jesus and the disciples would walk over the Kidron Valley into the garden. I noted several weeks ago that, that all men from the area surrounding Jerusalem had to come to Jerusalem for, for Passover. The population of Jerusalem would swell from about 70,000 to 250,000 people over that time period. And each of these families would have to offer a lamb for a sacrifice during Passover. Now, we don't know how many lambs were sacrificed at this time, but I'll tell you that about 30 years after Jesus' death, they went ahead and took a census of how many lambs had to be slaughtered. And in that that year alone, there were 250,000 lambs that were slaughtered in the temple. So imagine the blood from 250,000 lambs flowing from the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley. And this is something Jesus would have witnessed time and time again as he continued to go to Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus had made this journey several times. In fact, we know at least three times in John he goes for Passover. And he knew the amount of blood that would flow through the Kidron Valley. And he was probably thinking about his own blood that was about to spill as well. His blood as the Lamb of God, was going to be added to that blood that flowed from the lambs that were slaughtered. And as he walked through that valley, he would know, he knew the pain and he knew the heartache that he was facing. He knew that his death was coming. Jesus and his disciples finally made it across the valley and they got into the garden. And this would be the garden um, in the Mount of Olives. This would be where the Gethsemane event would take place. But I want you to notice that John doesn't talk about the Gethsemane event. He doesn't talk about Jesus crying out. That's covered in the other gospel accounts. But John does tell us something about the garden that is important for us to know. Judas knew that Jesus frequented the garden. In fact, in Luke's account in chapter 21 uh, and 22, we see that Jesus was basically at that garden every night for Passover, leading up to the Passover. So Jesus would go to that garden with the disciples, and he would prepare his heart and his mind for what was about to happen. But notice this, Jesus created a pattern. He created a pattern with his disciples that at night they would go to the garden. And guess who those, that pattern included? That pattern included Judas. So he was predictable for Judas. He could have gone somewhere else. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He could have gone somewhere else. He could have stayed away from the garden. He could have simply just gone anywhere, but instead he knew that it's time for him to go 
to the cross. So he went to that garden. And I think it's also interesting to note that, that the first betrayal of God happened in a garden. In the Garden of Eden, the first betrayal happened. The Garden of Eden where mankind, Adam and Eve, betrayed God in search of, full f- or of self-fulfillment. Where they abandoned the security and the truthfulness of God's word and betrayed him for the lies of the enemy. They believed a serpent, a created one, rather than the creator God. God was betrayed by his creation in Eden, and now Jesus, God incarnate, was going to be betrayed by his friend and his follower. But it was in that Garden of Eden that God made a promise to restore what was broken, to bring back unity between God and man. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent, that he would destroy the one who led the betrayal, that he would restore humanity to a right relationship with himself. But in this destruction, the one who came, the seed of Eve, would also be wounded. And we see this in Jesus' story. He goes to the garden. He's betrayed by his friend. And he is wounded. He is killed on the cross, but then he is resurrected again. All that is coming is to fulfill the Scriptures. All that is coming to fulfillment here in the garden where God made the promise to restore humanity and Jesus is in the garden to restore humanity. Jesus is the one sent by God to restore what was broken, to fix what was messed up by humanity. He is the one that crushes the head of the serpent. He is the one who fulfilled Scripture's promise of a Redeemer. What fell apart in the garden is restored through another betrayal in a different garden. Judas knew that Jesus was going to be there. He knew that the disciples would be with him, which he told those that were hunting Jesus. Hey, I know where Jesus is going to be. Let's go find him. They didn't want to risk a revolt. They didn't want to risk an uprising. So they did, and they didn't want a problem. So Judas was allowed to bring some sw- soldiers with him, some officials with him. Now the Greek word here is stadia, and it's used for a company of soldiers that usually re- refers to about 600 soldiers. But it could also refer to about a smaller unit of 200 soldiers. It doesn't matter. The, the reality is, is there were a lot of soldiers that came with Judas. Somewhere between 200 and 600 people came with Judas to the garden to make sure that Jesus didn't lead a revolt. And these soldiers and these officials came bearing what? Lanterns and torches and weapon, weapons. I think about, you know, torches and pitchfork. Let's go get the witch, right? That's, that's kind of the imagery here. They were ready to face whatever may come. They were coming to intimidate Jesus, to force him to comply. They planned on using their numbers and their equipment as a forceful reminder of who is in charge. That, that Jesus will comply whether he wants to or whether he doesn't. But how Jesus responds to the crowd is nothing short of epic. Jesus doesn't cower in fear. He doesn't tremble with anxiety. Rather, he goes boldly and confronts the men. Let's see what, he, what happens in verses 4. Jesus, then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words that he had said, I have not lost one of those who you have given to me. So Jesus, knowing the events that laid before him, knowing the betrayal, hearing the men come up there, knowing the road that he was about to travel, didn't hide in the garden. He didn't hide in the garden. He didn't run from his captors. 
He didn't use his disciples as a shield. No, John tells us that he went out to them. He sought them out. He boldly confronted the men with weapons and lanterns and torches. Just as a quick aside, too often we don't view Jesus for as he really is. Jesus wasn't some wimpy, quiet man. He wasn't some pushover. Jesus was brave. Jesus stood up for the truth. Yes, he is kind. Yes, he is gentle. Yes, he is compassionate. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is the Lamb of God. But that's not all that Jesus is. Jesus is strong. Jesus is brave. Jesus isn't afraid to confront his accusers. Jesus is king. Jesus is the Lamb of God, but he is also the Lion of Judah. Yet Jesus, how does he show his bravery? How does he show his strength? How does he show his kingship? Through sacrifice. Through willingly offering himself as an offering. It's through his slaughter that we see him as he truly is. It is through his sacrifice that we can see his beauty and we can see his strength. And we see this on full display here. Confrontation of those seeking him out. He goes out to them, he seeks them, and he searches them out, and he begins to question them. He begins to ask them questions. Those who had come to him, he begins to question. Jesus shows himself as a commanding figure who is in charge of this situation. It may look like that crowd of 200 is in charge, but Jesus knows who's actually in charge. He's in charge. Not those guys with the torches, not those guys with the weapons. Jesus was the one running the show. He was the one controlling the situation. And he asked this question, who are you seeking? He knew who they were looking for, and they knew who he was looking for, who they were looking for. And so this seems like a strange question to ask, but Jesus wants them to know again that he is the one in charge, like he is, he is the one laying down his life, that he knows and he sees all that is about to happen, and he still goes forward. There can be no question in the minds of the readers of John's gospel who is actually in control of the whole situation. After he asked them the, the question, who are you seeking? They answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And his response literally takes them aback. Jesus says, I am he. And John tells us that they stepped back and fell on the ground. What's actually going on here? This phrase is used multiple times in John's gospel. I am, or in Greek, ego eimi. This is a simple statement that aligns Jesus with God the Father. Now, real quick, if you don't remember, when Moses meets the burning bush in the wilderness, he is confronted with God. And Moses asks God, the bush, in Exodus 3.13, he says, who should I say sent me to the Israelites? And God responds in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That is God's divine name revealed in the Old Testament. Yahweh. And when the Israelite people translated their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, in a translation called the Septuagint, there's going to be a test, so write that down, Septuagint. The, the way that they translated God's name was the same way that Jesus is demonstrated here, ego eimi. So in Exodus 3.14, when God responds in the Greek, it says ego eimi. And what we can see throughout John's gospel is that he doesn't shy away from the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. That he isn't just another man. He is divine. He is God. The revelation of Jesus as God in the flesh leaves these men, these soldiers standing before him, weak. They cannot stand before God and not bow the knee. 
Remember, these aren't just run-of-the-mill men. These are soldiers. They are prepared for battle. They are prepared for engagement. And they are, st- they are trained to stand firm in the face of a fight. And yet at the simple phrase, I am he, they are taken aback. They fall down. Jesus is in control. Even though it looks like these things are happening to him, he is allowing them to take place because he knows what must happen for the mission to be completed. And since he is in control, he tells the group who has come to him to get him. He instructs the group that has come to get him that they need to leave his disciples alone. That they have come for me, you leave them alone. The disciples are not the ones that the soldiers are looking for, so they're untouched. And John tells us in verse 9 of chapter 18, this was to fulfill the words that he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Previously, Jesus had said that he will keep those that are his. In John 6, 39, he says this, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, not lose, I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Or in John chapter 10, verse 28, I, have, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Or even more recently in John chapter 17, verse 12, while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. You see here, Jesus is protecting his disciples. Jesus is the good shepherd protecting his sheep. He is willing to lay his life down for his sheep. Just like John 10:11 says, I am the good shepherd, the shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is willingly giving himself over to the authorities, demonstrating his power and his authority over the situation, but he is demanding that the opposition leave his people, his sheep alone. But not everyone is willing to take or allow this to take place. In a somewhat brave and stupid move, Peter steps out to protect Jesus. In verse 10, it says this, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, Put away your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father that has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. Peter made a bold move. And he got a bolder and sterner rebuke. Peter wanted to protect Jesus, neglecting the reality of all that just went on. Jesus didn't need Peter to protect him. With just one phrase, he knocked these men on their back. I'm not sure what Peter was thinking, but in Peter fashion, thinking was probably the furthest most thing from his mind. Peter is a, a man of action. He doesn't usually think very well, and I'm sure some of us can relate. Again, all this was happening, all that was happening here was not a surprise to Jesus. And it shouldn't have been a surprise to his disciples. Again, he had just been teaching them that this was going to happen. He was been preparing them for this moment. And Peter completely missed it. One commentator said this the blow was as clumsy as Peter's courage was great. The tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. What Peter was doing was not protecting. Jesus, he was trying to make himself feel better. He didn't want Jesus to leave. And then Jesus responds with, to Peter, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is reminding Peter that his purpose was to die, to take the wrath of God upon himself so that humanity, those who would believe in him, 
could be reconciled, could be brought back into a relationship with God. Peter wanted to revolt, but Jesus' purpose was to reunite. So then Jesus hands himself over to the authorities, again, willing to go along with them. Verse 13 says this, First they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Jesus is arrested and he's taken to Annas. This is an interesting note because Annas wasn't high priest. Caiaphas was. So what's going on here? What is happening here? Why was Jesus taken to Annas? You see, Annas was appointed high priest around the time of Jesus' birth. He was later stripped of that title by a Roman official who didn't much care for Annas. But according to Jewish law and custom, if you were appointed a high priest, it was a calling for life. You were always going to be high priest. So Annas had influence and sway among the Jewish people. So Jesus was taken there in order to first be questioned by this Annas guy, some Jewish leaders. The other tidbit that John reminds us of is that Caiaphas had been made, uh, made a prophecy about this point. You see, after, G- after Lazarus' death, and after he had been raised from the dead, Caiaphas said this about Jesus in John chapter 11, verse 50. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation to perish. You see, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, made a prophecy about Jesus' death on the behalf of others. And that is coming to fulfillment right here. And John says so there in verse 14. And that's, a, that's all we get from this first betrayal scene in the garden. John was the master storyteller. Now what does he do? He switches to a scene with Peter. In verse 15, he says this. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. The disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest. So he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl, who was the doorkeeper, said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing there with them warming himself. This is a first of Peter's betrayal. After Jesus is bound and removed from the garden, we get this little vignette focused on Peter. And we see here, something completely different from what we saw about the brave Peter in the garden. We now see this sheepish sheepish and cowardly Peter that betrays his teacher, that betrays his friend. Peter and another disciple make their way to the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus was taken. Just Just an aside, this another disciple is John, the author of the gospel. John never uses his name in his own gospel, but he always refers to himself as either another, ago, another disciple here or as the disciple whom Jesus loved that you'll see repeated throughout. It's simply an artistic decision made by, by John. Anyway, Peter is confronted by a servant girl about being one of Jesus' disciples. The way she asks the question, she expects the answer to be in the negative. And based on the way that Peter just acted in the garden we would naturally expect that Peter is going to be bold and stand up. He just cut a guy's ear off for Jesus. And so we would expect as readers that he would come in and he would declare that, yes, I am a disciple of Jesus, but no. And he's not just a regular disciple, right? 
He's one of the inner circle. He's one of those close and intimate disciples with Jesus, one of the big three. He was bold in the garden, and yet he declared here that I that he was not with Jesus in a very emphatic way. Peter's responded, responded to the servant girl in the complete opposite way that Jesus responded to the mob in the garden. Jesus said, I am he. Peter said, I am not. John wants us to feel the contrast in Jesus' statement and in Peter's. When faced with an arrest that would eventually lead to his de- death, Jesus was bold in proclaiming who he was. But Peter, when faced with a question by someone who held no authority, buckled. He lost all his courage and abandoned his rabbi. And we leave him there, standing there, warming by a fire, a charcoal fire. And the scene shifts over to Jesus standing before Annas, the high priest. Verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered them. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus and saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, Give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So here we see a religious leader's betrayal. You see, Annas had two primary questions that he wanted Jesus to answer. The questions were about his disciples and about what he was teaching. Now, Jesus doesn't hold back. He doesn't pull back any punches. He tells the high priest that all his teachings have been done in public. He wasn't meeting in secret to overthrow the government. He wasn't meeting in secret to overthrow the rulers. He wasn't plotting a revolt. His teachings were heard in public places. And not just any public places. In synagogues and in the temple, the Jews had heard his teaching. Here's where things get a little heated up. Jesus reverses what's happening in the court, and he puts the high priest on trial. He confronts the court. This isn't how court is supposed to be held, he's saying, not under the cover of darkness, not in secret. And in fact, in the Jewish law and custom, it wasn't the accused that was supposed to get interrogated for a crime. It was the witnesses to the crime. So you would, uh, you would accuse or you would in- interrogate those who brought up accusations against the accused, not the accused getting, uh, or being interrogated. So when Jesus says what he says to the high priest, it is viewed as insulting him. He's accusing the high priest of this, betraying the law of Moses, of betraying the word of God for an expedient case against Jesus. So the betrayal wasn't against Jesus so much as it was against the God and the scriptures that this man, the high priest, claimed to uphold. Because Jesus said that these harsh words to Annas, one of the people near him slapped him in the face. And Jesus' rebuke against Annas is like a mirror shining on Annas' disobedience. His disobedience to the law that he claimed to love. Annas was a hypocrite and was betraying his position in authority. Annas was an unfaithful and false high priest. And this is important because in John chapter 17, most people call that Jesus' high priestly prayer. So Jesus is acting as a faithful high priest in John chapter 17. And then we get this picture of an unfaithful 
high priest. You see, this unfaithful high priest was letting down, letting his own desires and his own fears dictate what he was going to do rather than letting the truth of God's word lead him. Jesus, however, was acting as a faithful and true high priest. He was making a stand for the truth. He was taking the place of sinners. He was standing in the gap for those that trusted him, for those who loved him. Annas was failing the people that he claimed to serve. He was more interested in self-preservation than he was the truth of God. Now the reality is, is that it doesn't matter who you put your faith in. The Jewish people put their faith in Annas. And sometimes we put our faith in people that we shouldn't put our faith in. Here's the thing. People will always fail you. Systems will always fall short. Ideologies will always dissatisfy. But Jesus never will. Jesus will always be faithful. He will never fall short. He will always satisfy. That's the contrast here. Leaders and people, leaders and people in power failing, but Jesus staying faithful. Jesus faithfully facing the plan that was set out from the beginning. Jesus is enduring this kangaroo court that Annas has put on display because he is faithful to his mission. He has come to save sinners. And this one step, this is just one step that he has to go through to ensure that that mission is accomplished. Though everyone around him may betray him, he is staying faithful. He endured the betrayal in the garden, and he is now enduring the betrayal of those called to serve him, those appointed in positions of authority and power over his people. They are called to uphold the law of God. They are called and entrusted with God's calling, and yet they are making a mockery out of it all now. But Jesus is faithful. Because Jesus is always faithful. Jesus is bound once again by Annas and he's carried away to Caiaphas. You see, Annas can't handle Jesus' rebuke. He can't handle the retort. So he is going to deal, he's going to hand him over and let somebody else deal with him. Then we get this last vignette of Peter in verses 25 and 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't, you see, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it again. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Peter's standing there, warming himself, and he is again confronted by people who want to know if he knows or belongs to Jesus. And twice more, Peter denies being a follower of Jesus. John retells the events in this way by contrasting the reality of Jesus standing up for what he knows to be true, that he denies nothing and Peter denying everything. Peter's humanity and betrayal is on full display in his denial of Jesus. But this was to fulfill what happened earlier in John's gospel. John chapter 13, verses 36 and 38. There's this interaction between Jesus and Peter. Peter says this, Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Verse 37, Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And that just happened. Peter, bold in the garden, bold in the presence of Jesus, is cowering once Jesus is arrested. But Jesus knew Peter would fail. Jesus knew that Peter would betray him. 
Jesus knew the, betra- the, the reality of what would come. And yet, Jesus still loved Peter. Jesus still cared about Peter. And I want us to know this. You don't have to be a perfect follower of Jesus. That's what Peter shows us. Peter's story isn't over. Eventually, Peter is restored, and he becomes one of the most prominent leaders in the early church. He becomes a bold evangelist ready to talk about Jesus wherever he goes, teaching and preaching despite the reality of prison and death hanging over his head. And that's the good news of the gospel message, that it's not about my failures. It's about Jesus' faithfulness. We can fail, and we will. We can betray Jesus with a lack of faithfulness, and we will. But as long as we return to him, he will embrace us as his own. That's the grace found in the arms of Jesus. Peter couldn't be restored or emboldened until he understood the power of Jesus' death and the beauty of his resurrection. Those are the truths that we must hold on to. The gospel message that we must cling to daily. Because of our unfaithfulness, we are not worthy of God's love. We are not worthy of God's grace. We are not worthy of God's goodness. But because of Jesus' faithfulness, we receive his love. We receive his grace. And we receive his goodness. It's all about Jesus. All the time. Our lives should be billboards about the goodness, grace, and love of God. Now, I want us to be careful, though. Just because God will grant us forgiveness, and just because God gives us grace in our unfaithfulness, doesn't mean that we are free to behave however we want. As followers of Jesus, we are called to pursue holiness, to pursue faithfulness. We are to pursue the good works that God has planned before us, knowing that all the while, when we fail, There is grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. When we are unfaithful, when we betray Jesus, Jesus is still faithful. Jesus is always faithful. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus' faithfulness. Thank you that even though I will stumble, I will fall, I will fail, that you will still love me. You will still care about me because you are faithful to the end. I pray, Lord, that if there's people in here that don't understand that faithfulness, that they would look to you and see your goodness. They would see your grace. They would see the love that you have. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up. and. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.